you look at the research on transitions from prison to college, one of the things that's important for those transitions is to see people like you who have had similar experiences, whether it's skin color or livid experience of incarceration or whatever, right? That you see people like you. From UW Tacoma, this is Pot Defiance. Welcome to Pod Defiance, where we don't lecture, but we do educate. I'm your host, Maria Chrysostomo. Today on the pod, the Prison to College Pipeline with UW Tacoma Assistant Professor Chris Bisley and UTEP alum, Maria Milley. Bisley and Amelie have both been incarcerated. They'll talk about their experience and how they're working to help other transition out of the criminal justice system and in higher education. So hi, today we have Chris Bisley and Omari Amelie. Can you briefly introduce yourselves? We can start with Omari. Yeah, so my name is Omari Amili. I am a former UWT student. I graduated there in 2014 with a bachelor's in psychology and also a bachelor's in what's called interdisciplinary arts and sciences with a concentration on self and society. After that, I went into um, the Master of Arts in Interdisciplinary Studies program at UWT, where my focus was community and social change. And I did my graduate research on preventing recidivism through post-secondary education, where I developed um, the curriculum and a workbook for a prison-to-college workshop for my master's project. Um, before graduating, being hired by South Seattle College and then doing some work with the ACLU of Washington and becoming an author, public speaker, and I'm pretty pretty active around um, Tacoma, Seattle, doing various speaking engagements and events, sharing my story and doing my part to change the narrative around um, the possibilities for formerly incarcerated people. Chris? Yeah, I'm. Uh, uh, this is Chris. I'm an assistant professor at UWT. I like to think of myself as, uh, as a scholar, a community organizer, and a teacher. Um, so as a scholar, I study transitions from prison to college with the post-prison education research lab. Uh, as a community organizer, I co-founded the Formerly Incarcerated College Graduates Network, which has 1,000 members across 43 states and six other countries. Um, and then I also am spearheading uh, UWT's efforts to, to develop a, a stronger uh, support system for people transitioning from prison to UWT. And then my teaching, I, I, I teach research methods and uh, classes like social psychology and, and critical thinking. And throughout each one of those classes, try to sort of weave in um, – the transitions from prison to college and ideas about uh, formerly incarcerated people in each of those classes. So the topic for today is incarcerated, um, you know, people who have been able to move on into different places. Um, Can you both describe that experience of being incarcerated? Yeah, so for me, um, I was incarcerated back in October 2006. I was 21 years old at the time. I found out that I had a warrant for my arrest for bank fraud, um, but this warrant wasn't for just one charge. It was for 30 felonies at one time. I ended up sitting in the Pierce County Jail with a $100,000 bail, being told that I'm looking at decades in prison for leading organized crime. Ultimately, ultimately, I ended up pleading guilty as charged to all 30 felonies, and I felt like it was a blessing to have that many charges and ended up with a 36-month sentence with 36 months of probation. Um, while I was inside, I wouldn't say that. I really grew much. I wouldn't say there was many opportunities for development, but my mindset was already, you know, on I'm not going back. 
you know. Mm-hmm. So before I ever turned myself in and walked into the courtroom, I decided I wanted to change my life. So incarceration, I pretty much spent some time stagnant before I could start my life back up. But that that was um, my first time ever seeing the county jail. It was my first and only experience with incarceration. I think, um, you know, I, I want to preface my experience a little bit by saying that, like, I spent time in a minimum security facility. Um, and it was a short stint. Um, so my experience certainly isn't what many people's experience out there is. Um, I think for me, both in jail and prison, um, it's probably not what people would think about it, like being in community. But I think in some ways, like I was away from one community, but I was also part of another community. And I felt like like I met a lot of people that had similar backgrounds and similar experiences. Um, so it's sort of like being out of one community and in another one in some ways. Um, but I do remember like one thing that was very similar to being on the outside, which was like attitudes toward gay men and lesbians. And I remember my first haircut experience, which some people like wouldn't think about like being a traumatic experience. But I was a closeted gay man in prison. And I remember the, the person that was cutting my hair, the barber, like touching my head and at that moment I just sort of like went into like this state of like shock and like just trying to like you know I have this like barrier like I don't want guys touching me in you prison. You uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. yeah, like super uncomfortable like to the point where um, like I dissociated like I started to, to sweat and started to sort of not be as in touch with my surroundings so I had my heart racing and stuff and so I'll always look back at that as sort of like a traumatic experience and I think everybody's experiences in prison are different and um, what's traumatic varies from person to person Um, but it's not unusual for people who are incarcerated to have some kind of like traumatic experience while they're in there Um, but that's always sort of remember that as like a big part of of my prison experiences both like being in community with people in a way that sometimes people don't don't a place that people don't see community happening and then also a place where unexpected trauma can happen. Can you both describe what it was like a daily life, like a day when you were, you know, incarcerated? How was it? So it really just depends on which stage of my incarceration. You know, it started in the county jail, from the county jail. Um, if you're in the state of Washington and you're going to go serve a prison sentence in the Department of Corrections, you first go to Washington Correction Center at Shelton, which um, there is a lot different for me from the place where I ended up doing the majority of my time, which was large correction center, a minimum security camp. So being in the county jail, you know, you're stuck in the same room. You don't really leave unless you go to court. So I'm talking about there can be long periods of time where this room is all that you see. And because I had nonviolent crimes and things like that, it's like an open tier with bunks. Um, it's not you're not isolated from other people you're sharing your space with a whole bunch of other people Um, once I got to once I got sentenced and move on to Shelton that's when I got to you know to see what prison was really like real quick you know because you get to receiving you're pretty much in maximum security until you get classified and um, they get you to the upper R units where you'll actually sometimes people have access to TV and yard and things like that. Um, but once I got to large correction center, 
it was it was it really was nothing like what I would have expected prison to be like because it was a work camp, you know. So we had like open movement where I can just go to the gym if I wanted to. Um, you know, you can go to the library, you can actually play pool and shoot darts and things like that in there. And I wasn't really expecting that from prison. So it all depends on which stage that I was at. And because my crimes were nonviolent, my classification was pretty much minimum security that impacted you know what prison was like for me. So I, I didn't really have to. Um, deal with a lot of the things that some of the stories that I hear, you know, a lot of the survival, a lot of the riots and lockdowns and things like that. I never had to experience that. Chris, um, can you touch more about the experiences, like just the first day? Yeah, I think I think a lot of it, you know, even though I was incarcerated in Illinois and uh, Omari was in Washington, I think uh, a lot of it's sort of similar in that, you know, you come into receiving, it's maximum security when you're in receiving. Um, then when I got transferred, um, it was dormitory housing when I first got transferred, so everybody's in like one, one large room, probably like I don't know, maybe a couple hundred people, something like that, in one room in bunks, and then eventually you get you get a cell assigned, and then you go to that cell um, and spend your time mostly like in a yard and minimum security. Like you get your day is you go to you get up, maybe go to the yard for the day, then go to work, come home to your cell, right? Maybe make maybe make something. I remember I uh, I learned how to make uh, iced mochas in prison because we were lucky we had, <laughs> we actually had ice in the place that I was in in the summer in the Midwest it can get a little hot and we were lucky enough that we had ice there and stuff and and I learned to take the instant coffee and the the hot cocoa and like make an iced mocha but I think in in many ways it's it's like daily life sort of like the outside except for like all your choices are really constrained. And I think importantly, um, your opportunities for growth are really constrained, right? That like if you if you want to do something outside of work and yard, then it's going to have to be stuff like in the shadows that really aren't allowed, right? If you want to sort of work on – if you want to like contribute to community in some kind of ways, then you may get sort of caught up in things that like aren't allowed and – you know, sometimes people, sometimes people think talk about crime as being antisocial and things like drug dealing and drug manufacture, um, which go on on the inside, just like they go on the outside. Um, sometimes people see those as antisocial behaviors, um, but like for me, those were ways that I actually contributed to my community. They were ways that I saw value in myself, right? And so, if you're inside and you want to grow as a person. And contribute to your community and and sort of find value in yourself. If there aren't certain opportunities to do that, certain outlets, then you might find that in other ways. Just like for me, before I went to prison, I didn't feel like I had those opportunities whether they were there or not. Um, so I found those outlets in other ways. But I think – so in some ways, it's sort of a microcosm of society but with a lot more constraints and limitations on choice. So I want to go back and kind of like – Talk more about before prison. How was your life before prison? So for me, um, I came from a real messed up childhood, you know, with parents who were in addiction. I was always getting kicked out of class and suspended when I was at school, had been expelled from the Seattle Public School District, um, dealt with things like foster care, abandonment. You know, like there was a lot of uh, adverse childhood experiences for me. That's what led to my values being so messed up and distorted that I was living this lifestyle of crime that sent me to prison. So it was always pretty much um, I spent my time on the streets 
was hustling and but right before I, right before my incarceration I'd actually decided that I didn't want to do this stuff anymore. There was two times that I tried to stop and go to college, you know. So back in 2004 I was enrolled at a college in Hutchinson, Kansas and I went to school there. It didn't work out. I had to come right back home, right back to the streets and hustling. And then um before I had ended up turning myself in, finding out that I had a warrant for my arrest, I was enrolled at Portland Community College. So I had, I had tried multiple times, you know, to get out of that lifestyle and use education as a way out, but it just it didn't quite work out for me. But it was a lot of um a lot of adverse childhood experience, a lot of trauma that led to that lifestyle that got me incarcerated. Yeah, and I think like I, I think we sort of share some similar experiences, although also some differences in, in our childhood. And I you know, I think I had more probably of a, a family support system and um I also had less of like historical marginalization of a family and and also less um, current marginalization because of the color of my skin. But I think there are some similarities that, that we shared in that like when I grew up, I grew up in the Midwest and so it really wasn't about skin color so much in the Midwest in a small town because it's it's really all white people pretty much, especially at the time. Um, in the small town I grew up in, but it was, a, it was about like which side of the tracks you grew up on, right? What family you were born into. And people saw you differently and you saw yourself differently if you were born on the wrong side of the tracks or into the wrong family. And like I remember growing up, not re- I never really thought about college when I was growing up. Um, I just sort of assumed, I think, that I would I would go to work in maybe a factory if I was lucky. Like that was that was a good job. That would be a good outcome. And I remember in in school, I was I was told that I was too smart for my own good, and that was mm-hmm. that was the thing that I, that I really remember. Um, but there was a time in high school where I was really starting to find my passion. I was in a computer class, and um, I was so far ahead in the material that the teacher had to just stick me in a corner and say, "Like, here are some books. Teach yourself these books because you've already gone through all wow. the material." <laughs> And um, we were learning about executable files with MS-DOS. That might date me a little bit. Um, and she said, like, just get on the network and run the executable files and do and see what they do to, like, learn about executable files. Well, apparently I was in the library and I was running files that were on the system operator side of the network. This is before, like, network security and stuff. And I had the... I had the the librarian and the computer administrator like behind my shoulders, and I'm just I just keep going right because I'm doing exactly what I was told to do right get on the network and run the executable files. Um, well, they thought differently. I think they thought I was hacking the system. It was sort of like the, this fear about hacking the system, and so they brought me down to the principal's office, and you know, they wanted to give me a detention. I refused to serve the detention because I was doing exactly what I was supposed to be doing, and I remember in that moment. I was told that I was too smart for my own good in that moment, and that really stuck with me to this day. How old were you when that happened? Uh, probably 15, something like that, 15. Okay. And eventually they, they, you know, they kicked me off all the school computers. Uh, and this was back in the, the ni- early 90s, so let's keep in mind like what's happening here with the tech boom and stuff, like really <laughs> launching in the mid-90s. Kicked me off the school computers, and I didn't touch another computer until, like, 2001, I think it was. So the whole, like, tech boom, right? So here it was, this, like, person who really didn't have, like, purpose in life and stuff, finally finding, like, a place in life in the computer scene at this time when it's, like, a historic moment in the computer industry. And instead of taking that wayward kid 
and helping steer him into something that he's obviously like curious and passionate mm-hmm. about and skilled in. Instead, they like cut that off, right? And it wasn't too long after that that I caught my first felony and just really never did fall into something again. Um, I remember being interested in the Air Force, but I was a gay kid and you weren't allowed to be in the Air Force if you were gay. So I didn't really go into that, right? So I just kind of wandered around life and eventually found my place in like drug dealing world and sort of involved in like drug manufacturing scene and stuff like that because that's a place where – I had some self-respect. People welcomed me. They saw value in, in what I knew, and I felt like I could apply my mind in certain ways and be valued for that. Um, but that's, that's, those are some of the moments that stick out to me. Hey, everyone. It's Maria. I wanted to take a moment to tell you about UW Tacoma Assistant Professor Barb Taves. Dr. Taves teaches in social work and criminal justice here at UWT. Dr. Taves works with incarcerated men and women on rethinking the design of prisons and jails. These men and women utilize principles of restorative justice along with basic architecture techniques to reimagine these facilities. Dr. Taves also conducted a study that found exposure to nature can improve well-being among women and prison. You can read more about Dr. Taves by visiting the UW Tacoma website. So now going back... um, how was that transition from, you know, prison to, like, going back to society? So for me, um, you know, I had 30 felonies on my record, and I didn't have any type of work experience. I didn't really have any type of programs that I was able to sign up for. I didn't have any type of mentors, any type of guidance. I had to pretty much just figure out what I wanted to do with my life. So at first, I didn't really know. I wanted to um, just make sure I didn't get locked up again. So I went and found a job at the Old Country Buffet, but that wasn't going to work out for me for too long. Um, I ended up quitting pretty quick once I got that job and decided I had to turn to education. And before, you know, I had a GED, but I my whole K-12 background, background was negative. You know, I um, like I said, I was always getting kicked out of class and suspended, I had major gaps in my education. Um, I felt like I couldn't do math, period. Um, you know, there was just, I, during, as a child, I probably was absent, you know, just as many days as I was in school. So I didn't feel like I even belonged in college. You know, I felt like that's that was for other people. That wasn't for me. But once I got enrolled and, you know, I just was putting this positive energy out, I just I was getting positive back. You know, things started happening for me with, like, housing and things like that, things that are very difficult to overcome. You know, these barriers that society has in place, like housing, transportation, if you don't have that in order, then really nothing that you're trying to do is going to work out. But for me, you know, I had a positive mindset and the housing fell in place, the transportation fell in place, and I was able to um, find child care for my kids and I was able to make it happen with education. Once I got enrolled in school, it kind of gave me some direction and some purpose for my life where before I didn't really know where I was going to end up. Um, I still didn't, even in college, I didn't know where I was going to end up, but I was taking positive steps towards something, you know, where working a dead-end job is like, you know, where's my life headed? Nowhere. (laughs) So education um, really, with, with that really, it helped me a lot. Released in June 2008, it took me until September to start school, but once I started school, you know, that just set me on a path that lasted for some years. Yeah, and I, I think, like, I identify with that a lot, too. Um, you know, when I, I, when I got out I, in sort of rural areas, there's really, there really aren't reentry programs. It's like your parole officer is sort of your reentry person, if you will, and the parole officer maybe 
shows up depending on sort of how you're doing, like maybe every like few months to do like a urinalysis or something like that to do a drug screening. Um, so I think for me, probably education ended up being reentry for me in some ways. Like I was, I think one of the ways that I've been privileged in life is to have an uncle that I like, I sometimes I say talk me into going to college, but he really just asked me. And I think sometimes that's all it takes is somebody to like ask a question that sort of sparks something in your mind. Um, but he sort of asked me if I was going to go to college to try to, to try to find some way in life again. Um, and when I was there, um, I was doing well, but I still wasn't. I, so and so to back up a little bit, like similarly, I think similar to Omari, I hadn't really thought of somebody like me going to college until I was asked that question. Um, I was in a trio program, which is a student support program, and they took us to a university campus, and then. I started to see that as a possibility. Like it was other, before, it was like some kind of foreign land. While I was there, I while I was at the community college, I thought, well, if I can do this, then I can do a bachelor's degree program. And so I started to sort of see that as a possibility in my mind. And I really wasn't sure, just like Omari, I wasn't really sure what I was going to do with it. I was just trying to go somewhere with it. And then when I was in the bachelor's degree program, I um, eventually I transferred up to Minnesota um, from Illinois, and I had a professor that asked me if. I was going or where I was going to to masters to to graduate school for a masters program. I, was, I don't know. I never really <laughs> thought about it before, um, but I started to think about it when she asked me, and then uh, I decided to do uh, a masters program where you didn't have to do a research thesis because I was like scared of that. And then eventually, there uh, I had, was at this matchmaker, this psychi matchmaker for Honor Society for Psychology, and I met someone uh, and. A professor, and she asked me what I was interested in for research, and I said addictions, and nobody there did it. And she pointed me to this other program, and then I met this other guy that sort of mentored me into like PhD program and stuff, Lenny Jason. Um, but and then I finally figured out that like I could do a PhD program, but it took me like seven years to figure out that that was a possibility, and so it was it was like seven years of education being a way to help me discover. I think different possibilities in life and to figure out like what is this thing we call society that I'd never really sort of known about and understood. And I certainly didn't know how to navigate it and how to like find a place in that in a positive way. Um, but it helped me figure that out. Um, so I think education was my reentry support system. So what are some of the majors that you focused in college? Uh, so I initially I was going to do human services. So I, I knew I wanted to, to support people in some kind of way. And I was human services. That sounds good. Um, and then I went into psychology specifically. Um, ended up in back in computers for a little bit in for a semester, um, but then went back to psychology. Couldn't get away from it. Um, I was going to be an addiction counselor at first, and then I was going to be a dual diagnosis person when I got my, when I went into the master's program. And then um, when I got into went to a PhD program, I went into community psychology, which is sort of like a blend of psychology and sociology, looking at both the individual and the systems and structures and how they interact with one another. Um, decided to to study addiction recovery, um, and then uh, later on when I got into academia, decided to to focus on transitions from prison to college. Larry, so 
I started out in human services as well to be a drug and alcohol counselor, but I never, you can start working in that field after a couple quarters, and I never started working in that field. I had 30 felonies, never wanted to go through the background check process. That scared me. So um, after earning my associate's degree in that field, I never went to work there, so I had to go on to a bachelor's program where my first I don't know what made me choose it, but it was the interdisciplinary arts and sciences, um, self and society. That was my major for most of my time at UWT. But um, I had taken several psychology cl- that 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 major doesn't exist anymore. Um, but I was just all over the place. You know, I might be in a history class and then a. Uh, just psychology, sociology, all kinds of different classes counted, but it was, they weren't really building up on each other. You weren't really focused at all, you know? So I um, eventually, like, I'm probably a couple quarters from graduating with my bachelor's, and I decided to go add a double major. I added psychology towards the end there because it, I had a, enough classes to where I could take um, all psychology classes and still earn both degrees. You know? They counted so, as both. Yeah, yeah. so they, they counted towards both. So I ended up adding psychology pretty late there um, and then when I went in I wanted to get my master's in social work but I was told that with my background I would never be able to do the internships uh, so that wasn't an option for me it actually would have been an option but someone had told me it wasn't an option for me so I had written it off and then I ended up going into the master of arts in interdisciplinary studies for a while my research focus was going to be on the um, educational impacts of kids served by low income public housing but after going into um for a second nonprofit leadership i went back to that preventing recidivism through post secondary education topic and that's what i ended up doing for the rest of my program when i earned my degree so my um under my associate's degrees in human services bachelor's in psychology and IAS self and society to my master's is in um, interdisciplinary studies. Wow. So what are some of the things that you have been doing now? So lately I've been doing a lot of, uh, I'm part of a speakers bureau called Humanities Washington. I've been doing a lot of public speaking. That's probably what I've been doing more than anything lately. Um, even outside of Humanities Washington, whether it's a youth summit or events at the History Museum that Dr. Beasley sends to me, I've been just going all over the place speaking. You know, I, I've, um, been in Yakima, Yakult, Washington. I just was invited to Coyote Ridge and Airway Heights um, Correctional Centers. I've been to Large Correction Center where I actually served my time in Washington Correction Center, which is the receiving unit where I was at. So I've been able to go to places um, where there are people who are just like me and telling my story and impact their lives in a way where they can now see possibilities for themselves. They're now thinking about um, what they can make happen rather than thinking about their deficits. So that's pretty much what I've been doing right now. I'm also an author. I wrote a couple books. One is an autobiography called Transforming Society's Failure. The other is a children's book called In Search of Role Models, which I've done like elementary school assemblies around that. And I'm working on a guide to overcoming adversity and graduating from college. I just left the Students of Color Conference in Yakima. I did a um, breakout session around that book and also around you know pretty much my story and the benefits of post-secondary education for formerly incarcerated people. Chris? One of the things that um, that I'm working on is uh, the post-prison education research lab. Um, so we study transitions from prison to college. Um, there's a couple different projects that, that come from that. Uh, we have a community advisory board that, that helps steer steer the work with it. Um, one is is looking at various different uh, administrative data sets that the, that the state already has and try to better understand uh, transitions from, from prison to college using some of those existing data that are available. Um, but I think the one, the one that really 
I think connects with Omari's work a little bit. Like you talk about these possibilities and helping people explore these possibilities. Um, the, ma- the main thing that I'm really interested in as an academic is understanding what those possibilities are, right? Because I realized that it took seven years of college before me to even figure out that being a professor was possible, right? Why is that, right? Why did it? Why, when I got out of prison, did I did I fail to imagine college as a possibility in my life, right? Why did I have this limited mindset? Um, so I'm trying to understand what possibilities people have whenever they get out of prison and sort of how those change over time and the role of education in that. Uh, the other thing that, that I'm working on is um, the formerly incar- incarcerated college graduates network that I co-founded. So I think with that, though, I'm, I'm most interested in um, supporting the next generation of leaders within that network. Um, so I think I've done um, about as much as I think that I can and should do with that. And I think now is the time for me to um, sort of step back a little bit and allow some space for other leaders to emerge in that space that I sort of helped pull together. Um, the third thing that, that I'm working on right now is developing better supports at, at UWT for people transitioning from prison to college. Um, and it, as I do that work, I try to support formerly incarcerated students at UWT and alumni at UWT because I think it's it's really important in this work to center formerly incarcerated people in it. Um, formerly incarcerated people are the people that have been most harmed by these systems of oppression that, that we've built um, and this system of punishment that we've built. Uh, and I think we have an uh, ethical responsibility to make sure that formerly incarcerated people are centered in that work, not only because they've been most harmed by those systems, um, but also because they have expertise that they've developed from being participants in that system. They understand what the system is. They understand what what reentry is like. They understand things that work for them and don't work for them. And they can combine that with academic knowledge and develop a level of expertise that people who haven't been incarcerated and directly impacted the system certain simply like can't develop, right? And so they can develop both the scholarly expertise and the livid expertise and combine that together. Um, so in my work that I do in, in trying to develop uh, – a Husky Post Prison Pipeline, I think it's important to, to center people most uh, most impacted in that work. Um, so we have a, a summit that we're putting together on June 19th and 20th where we'll invite uh, leaders around the country and across the state that have been working on transitions from prison to college uh, and especially inviting people around the country and around the state that have been directly impacted and have developed s- support systems already. So we want to bring in these um, leaders around the country that have been doing work around um, prison to college and help us learn as an institution how to better support people who have been uh, directly impacted and then get administration together the following day to help decide what this program is going to look like. Um, Because even though I think it's important for formerly incarcerated people to be centered in this work, I don't think we should be the only ones in this work. Like We need allies to make all of this work. Um, so we need faculty, we need staff, we need administrators to sort of get at the table with us so we don't bear, bear all the burden for making this happen. And I think that they have expertise that's really valuable. I think that the livid expertise is valuable to me, but I also believe that they have this institutional knowledge. They have this scholarly knowledge that they've developed over time, and I value that. Um, so I want to bring us all to the table to figure out what this is going to look like. So what are some of the outcomes that you've received, whether that's on your work or projects that you've had? 
So for me, um, the outcomes that I received, like my whole life was transformed by my educational journey. You know, the fact that I was hired by South Seattle College as a faculty member and a case manager, I would have never been qualified to do anything like that. Um, and I made pretty decent money working for them before I ended up leaving. And then just the doors that have been open with the ACLU of Washington. I've had several other um, job opportunities come my way that required an education, you know, whether I wanted it or not, whether I actually pursued it, went to the interview or not. You know, I've had a lot of opportunities come my way. But, you know, I'm, I'm kind of being real picky. You know, I, I, I don't feel like I should just settle for whatever comes my way. I feel like I have put in all this hard work that, you know, I, I've, I feel like happiness should be at the end of that, you know, rather than feeling like you're just trading your time for money and it's a place you don't really want to be. So my outcome has been, you know, I've grown a lot. I've developed a lot. You know, I've been able to become a professional and, you know, my network has really grown in a tremendous way. Another outcome of that, though, is $150 plus thousand dollars debt as well. You know, so it hasn't always been all good. You know, there is some bad that came from that. You know, I don't really see any light at the end of the tunnel with that debt. You know, there are things like public service loan forgiveness, but you have to meet the qualifications for that. Right now, I wouldn't, you know, so um, I, I feel like it's been a very positive experience and I definitely would do it again. If I had to, I'd probably do it a little bit different. You know, hopefully I'd have a little bit more guidance and things like that. But, you know, I feel like my outcomes have been, I mean, I, I couldn't imagine when I walked out of prison that my life would be what it is right now. You know? And, you know, I think that's, I think the employment piece and leadership opportunities are a place that, like, a place that we could definitely grow, uh, something we could definitely grow on in, in, in Washington and, and elsewhere. Um, I think that we've we've done a better job of making sure that people are compensated for their contributions. I think in the, the nonprofit world, when we bring people in for speaking events, et cetera, we're better about, like, paying them for the labor and the sacrifices that they make at that. But that is really only necessary because people are excluded from the labor market and from leadership opportunities, right? If if formerly incarcerated people are in professional positions, they can afford in their life to sacrifice an evening to go to a speaking event without getting paid, right? And so we um, – on one hand, we're doing better about making sure that people are compensated, but we're not doing as good of a job in making sure that people are – compensated in a in a stable way that helps them value themselves as professionals and helps other people value them as professionals um and i think like in, in some ways like paying people for certain contributions in some ways like takes away also from their civic participation right like there are things that people who um people who have privilege do in order to just contribute to their community right and they do that freely but they do that because they have the stability to to sacrifice that that time, and it doesn't sort of take away from supporting their family, right? Yeah. Um, so I think we need we need to move a little bit further and think about welcoming formerly incarcerated people into professional positions. You know, things like um, well, I don't want, I don't want to I don't want to call out individual opportunities, but <laughs> I do want to say that there are a lot of professional positions in the state of Washington that support prison-based education that support post-prison education that support re-entry in general and there are a lot of people working in those positions that haven't been directly impacted themselves and i don't want to take anything away from the great work that they do but i do want to say that those are opportunities 
in which directly impacted people can bring a unique perspective, a unique lived experience that adds value combined with the academic knowledge that they have. And they can really bring something special to that position. And people coming out, they look for and they recognize that. If you look at the research on transitions from prison to college, one of the things that's important for those transitions is to see people like you who have had similar experiences, whether it's skin color or livid experience of incarceration or whatever, right, that you see people like you. And that helps you, one, feel immediately comfortable in that setting, feel welcomed in that setting. But it also helps you envision different possibilities in your life, right? If I'm getting out and I'm working with a formerly incarcerated person in reentry or reentry education, um, I immediately can see that as a possibility. It turns a light bulb on. So I think it's important to include formerly incarcerated people in this work uh, out of an ethical responsibility of making sure that those who have experienced the most consequences share in the rewards of that uh, whenever we, when we pump money in, into this system. Um, that they share in those rewards. I think it's important because they bring this livid experience. And I think it's important because um, it makes it, it – it, it helps formerly incarcerated people be able to contribute to the community in many different ways because of that stability it offers. Yeah, my, my experience has been a little bit different as far as the um, – like there's a lot of people who expect just because you had come from – this disadvantage that you will just give your time freely. So I feel like we still have a long way to go with the speaking engagements, with um, just any anything where you're speaking about your life and your experiences and you're benefiting other people with that. I feel like that expertise is not quite valued um, in the way if you earned a college degree or if you had worked in some field for a certain amount of time and you learned a lot of things about that. I feel like those people are valued a lot more. You know, like no one's asking these professionals to donate their time for free. To me, I don't feel like the value has been there enough. If I wasn't a part of the Humanities Washington Speakers Bureau, I would say that the majority of speaking engagements that come my way are people who expect me to give my time freely. Sometimes what happens is people who are in a privileged place in life, which I consider myself in that in that place right now too, but I haven't always been there. So I think I bring have a little bit of a different like historical perspective that I can bring to it. Um, but I think people who are in a privileged place in life don't necessarily, I think, understand the pressures that get placed on people that have those experiences and all the things that, that we're asked to, to contribute in ways. And I think also sometimes don't understand like what an even, being an, even, an evening means, right? So doing a speaking event or driving two hours, right? Whenever you have limited time, whenever you have really limited financial resources to pay for gas, to pay for a vehicle, whatever, right? Um, you might have daycare and sort of what does daycare cost, right? To somebody in privilege, maybe that's not a big deal and you can just drop your kids off somewhere or you have family members that can take care of them or whatever, right? But people are often making sacrifices that aren't completely understand, understood by people that sort of are living a privileged life. Um, and so not only is each sacrifice maybe not understood – but also the totality of all the requests that are getting put on people and the pressures that, that um, people put themselves in. Yeah. So I'm curious to know more about your thoughts on the criminal justice system. So I feel like the criminal, a lot of people like they think it's broken and things like that. I feel like it's working the way that it was designed to work. It's putting people in this permanent underclass. It's um, creating financial instability in people's lives. It's, you know, taking people away from their families and creating cycles of poverty and things like that. You know, I feel like capitalism relies on systems like this in order for it to function. 
Yeah, I I think the the criminal punishment system. Sometimes they call it the punishment system or criminal punishment system. Is um, is 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 really about punishment, right? Is about saying like, stop being like that, stop being like that, stop being like that. Um, and so it's sort of like a slap on the wrist in order to try to get people to conform to whatever rules, accepted rules are put in place by by those in power. Um, but as a punishment system, um, it doesn't really provide much of an alternative. And if it's a system in which it's saying stop being like that, stop being like that, stop being like that, and there is no alternative, then what is it really saying? Well, essentially it's saying stop being. And I don't know about you, but as a human, I'm just not very good at not being, right? I have to be something. Um, so it's a system that's like trying to, to pull things out of people but often doesn't provide an alternative and provide supports for that alternative. And I think that that's that's critical to have, right? If you're if you if you are going to have a system that has like certain people that decide what the rules are and is going to try to get people to conform to those rules, and we can sort of debate like the ethics of that and sort of who's at the table and um, who who makes those decisions. Um, but if you are going to have that system, um, you need to provide some supports and some alternative opportunities so that people can contribute and be part of that system that you're trying to get them to be part of. What can you say to those people who have a negative stigma about incarcerated people? I would say that, you know, when they um, live their life on a day-to-day basis, they never know who they might encounter, what that person's background was, what they've gotten away with, what they've been caught for. So the best way to go about it is just treat everybody with human decency. You know, like there's no reason to have these irrational fears just because this person had been caught 10 years ago doing something that they no longer do doesn't mean that they're a bad person, you know, here today or that they ever were a bad person. You know, sometimes people make decisions that, violate what the written rules, what the written laws are. But there's also a lot of laws that are unjust. You know, there's a lot of people who make the laws that are unjust. So I, I just I feel like that stigma is really just it's, it's irrational. You know, there, there's a lot of people who have been able to grow up and mature and they look back at what they did. And they're not even the same person anymore. You know, so those people like say you're like 40 years old, 50 years old. Just think back. Why well, are you the same today as you were when you were 20, 25? Or even, you know, have you learned lessons throughout your life? Have you made mistakes? And I feel like every person, if they're honest, they're going to say yes. Their mistakes might not have been the same, might not have led them to incarceration. But if we're honest with ourselves, like it could have, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like if if you ask people about like specific things that they've done in life, um, I think many people that you talk to will say that they've probably committed a felony at some point in their life, right? Like. Have you ever taken a medication that wasn't prescribed to you? And sometimes they're like non-narcotic painkillers. Maybe you had a grandma that like had some prescription ibuprofen. It's the only thing in the house if you've taken one, right? Or have you even possessed that without having a prescription for it? Did you go to the pharmacy and pick up a, a prescription for someone and take it back with them, right? You've committed a felony. Um, sometimes whenever people are kids, they just do stupid stuff, right? Like – Steal a bicycle or something. If it's over $300 in most states, like that's a felony, right? Um, possession of any like chemical substance, right? And so if sometimes like when people are 
sort of in their teens or early adulthood and later on they've you know used like ecstasy or like cocaine or something like that and like those um i think especially like you see ecstasy used by people that sometimes don't see themselves as like criminals if you will and sort of what however we're going to like think about criminals right but i think the the what i'm trying to get at is that many people do things in their lives that could be felonies and they're just less likely to be um policed less likely to be charged less likely to be prosecuted less likely to receive a lengthy sentence because of their their situation in life um and i think the stigma that we create around that um is really really important because what it does is it is is it silences people from vocalizing their their past and start speaking about their past. Um, and what does that do? Well, if I'm getting out of prison and I look around me in life and I don't see anyone who's a lawyer, a professor, um, uh, an executive at, at a successful business or a teacher or a social worker or anything like that, right? What kind of possibility am I imagining in my future? Well, that stigma keeps people who make make it to those positions from being open about their background. And whenever somebody gets out of prison, they don't see that. And so they don't imagine that as a possibility in their lives. Um, and I think like the there are some things that we could learn from um, the marriage equality. Some people might call it queer liberation movement. Um, there are some things that we could learn about that, about the importance of being out and combating that stigma. So that everyone starts to see the alternative narrative, right? Everyone starts to see that there are people who get out of prison and go on and do these amazing things. And then they're likely less likely to support harmful policies. And also people who get out see all the amazing things that people are doing. And they're more likely to set that as a goal for themselves and, and pursue that and sort of transform their lives. Thank you to our guests and a big thank you to our senior lecturer, Nicole Blair, for letting us play your music on the show. Thank you to Moon Yard Recording Studio and thank you for joining us today. Be sure to subscribe and go to iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Pocket Casts.